From the newsroom of Impact Alpha, I'm Brian Walsh, and this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, February 25th. Today, I'm joined by our roundtable regulars to make sense of materiality, externalities, and disclosures, and the impact of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Imogen Rose-Smith is an Impact Alpha contributing editor. Hi, Imogen. Hi, Brian. And David Bank is Impact Alpha's editor and CEO. Hi, David. Hello to both of you. But before we get to that conversation, here's what you need to know from this week in Impact Investing. Private equity firm TPG, which last year raised more than $5 billion for a climate fund, is set to become one of the world's largest marketers and originators of carbon and environmental credits. This comes following their roll-up of natural gas company Element Markets and the company Blue Source, which is a developer of nature-based carbon credits. Sending out an SOS for the SDGs. A UN report last year found that investment in the Sustainable Development Goals is nearly 20% below where it had been when the goals were developed in 2015. At that pace, the effective target date for achieving those 2030 goals would be 2093. In a guest post on Impact Alpha, Arthur Wood of Total Impact Capital offers a searing critique of the recent report of the G7 Impact Task Force, saying that, quote, The more we have proclaimed progress in the mobilization of assets and impact, the further we have gone backward. More money is flowing into donor-advised funds than is flowing out from them. There are more than 1 million donor-advised funds in the U.S. These are also known as DAFs, which hold over $160 billion in assets. These tax-advantaged DAFs took in buckets of capital, especially during last year's run-up in stocks and cryptocurrencies. For example, Fidelity Charitable, which is the largest manager of DAFs, took in $330 million in crypto donations last year alone, which is 12 times more than the year before. Donors get an immediate tax write-off, but they don't actually need to give the money away right away. Legislators are pushing to get more DAF capital out to high-impact ventures, both as grants and as impact investments. Investors are finding opportunities at the intersection of gender and justice. The most recent Project SAGE survey of more than 200 gender lens funds found that nearly half also had a racial lens, up from less than one quarter back in 2018. Suzanne Beagle's Gender Smart Investing Initiative launched a toolkit this week, rounding up the practices for investing for justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, or JEDI. Here's Gender Smart Sana Kapadia. The systems of finance in which we operate and the people who are in this field, there is increasing scrutiny about what it means to really be deep, rigorous, intersectional in one's approach. And there's an ongoing reckoning around some of these inequalities. Market Force raised $40 million to digitize Africa's small retailers. Around 95% of retail transactions in Africa are done in cash. Nairobi-based Market Force is aiming to help 1 million retailers in Africa digitize their transactions. And finally, Microsoft's Climate Fund backed Leco Labs, a producer of low-carbon wood for construction. Building materials and construction account for 11% of annual global greenhouse gas emissions. The Luxembourg-based Leco Labs aims to replace steel and concrete with sustainably sourced wood. Leco says its wood composite can be used for buildings reaching 330 feet and its insulated wooden walls can cut heating and cooling costs by up to 87%. Now it's time for our roundtable conversation. The unavoidable place to start is the bear in the room, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. 
perhaps the most significant challenge to the post-World War II order in Europe since that war ended. With Russian planes and missiles bombing cities across Ukraine and Russian tanks rolling in, there will be widespread suffering by civilians, flows of refugees, a shattering of the understanding of European security, and shockwaves across the global economy. Imogen, is there an impact investing angle to this? In some respects, it feels like the height of arrogance for the impact investing community to be asking right now, you know, what are the impact investing implications and ang- angles to Russia's invasion of the Ukraine? And part of me feels that way. However, in this instance, I actually think that there are some important and quite sad slash salient meanings for impact investing. So in many respects, the issues that have brought this crisis to its head are many of the factors that sort of the global economic factors that impact investing was sort of forged to rebut, right? This idea that capitalism around the globe can lead to global health and prosperity. I mean, that is sort of in effect the point of the sustainable development goals versus, you know, the need to move to a renewable economy, right? The need for something we don't talk enough about in impact investing, you know, democracy and freedom of the press. All of these are... The, the, the things that sort of impact investing believes in, the factors, the very, very, very forces that force it into creation, and the counterforce to that is really what you're seeing with Russia. And, and the fallout is going to create an enormous amount of need, an enormous amount of upset, poverty, health, you know, death. Like these are things that capital and people are going to need to fix and rebuild. And these are the problems that we're trying to address. And I think what you realize, you know, effectively on the brink of World War Three, is how vast these challenges are and how, how limited and small impact is in its ability to respond. And obviously it's not impact investing alone, but it, it, it gives you a sense of the, the, the gravitas and the scale of the challenge that, challenges that we face globally and the, and the urgency and the need to do more and potentially sort of to be a little bit more humble about it. On the sort of more practical side, I think that for ESG investing, this is going to be very difficult, particularly in the public markets. I think it's, you know, when you look at what's happening in the markets and you look what's happening to stocks in particular, stock markets are going to be rolled for we don't know how long. And the only places where you people think they can see returns are going to be commodities, places like commodities and defense stocks, which, you know, are not really easy to invest in if you're an ESG investor. So I think that there are sort of profound questions for impact investing. um, And there are practical immediate concerns for the ESG movement and the gains that have been made by ESG over the last five years. I mean, I think some of those will, at least in the short term, be rolled back. There's a, you know, the least of all the victims of this. I was looking this morning at the UN Development Program report on impact investing in Ukraine that came out in November of last year. Now, you know, effectively obsolete. And it's it makes for sort of just 
as you said, Imogen, sort of put things in perspective. It's talking about the opportunities for investments in infrastructure and energy and healthcare and a nascent ESG framework that was developing and that Ukrainian legislatures were were pushing forward to to bring you know tech investment and other things into Ukraine. All of that, obviously, you know, so, so to speak, shot shot to pieces. So. Um, the only thing that, that sort of came up as a kind of contrarian silver lining, Brian, was this view going around that maybe this is the disruption Europe needs to get off of Russian natural gas and maybe natural gas altogether. Imogen, I just have one question for you. Why, when oil prices go above $100 a barrel, don't everybody turn away from oil? Instead, they seem to think it's a time to go invest in, in oil stocks. Because, well, that's how markets and investing work, right? It's a lot of buy high and sell low. If solar prices went up to $100, everybody said would say solar is dead. Yeah, because more people are invested in oil than they are in solar. But the problem, again, is it's, it's like a weather versus climate argument, right? Like, even though people are, you know, quote unquote, long term investors, people are judged on short-term time horizons. So they want to catch the the rising tide. So the Ukraine invasion by Russia is good for those who hung on to their oil stocks? Or if you got into oil, you know, at the beginning of the year. Like investing is trading as well as buying and holding. Or you hold on to your conviction and you say, I believe this is the long-term trend. And I'm just going to suck it up for the next 18 months and know that my portfolio is going to underperform. That's a completely legitimate position to take. But ultimately, all investors, whether they are sustainable, impact or not, need to buckle up for the turbulence over the coming weeks and months. Turning to our next topic, a bit of a controversy in the impact investing world with a showdown between the materiality and externalities in impact measurement and disclosure. David, walk us through what this even means. Well, Brian, these are like wonky terms that are now being batted around on many fronts in impact land. Um, the debate comes down to whether companies and thus also investors' portfolios should be reporting only on issues that are material to the bottom line, say, of that enterprise. Um, and that could include now, and and the SEC is pushing on this, and and also something called the ISSB, the International um, Sustainability Standards Board, pushing towards this notion of materiality of environmental and social and governance factors, so-called ESG factors. But there's a kind of beyond ESG argument that says, hey, it's not just the risk to your company or even to your portfolio, it's your company's impact on the rest of the world, on stakeholders, on communities, on workers, on, on the environment. And those are what, what you were calling externalities. So the debate is really, you know, narrow notion of reporting of impact or this broader notion that takes in um, not just the impact on your company, but your company's impact on the world. And are companies equipped to even uh, effectively report and disclose their impact on the world? These kind of reporting regimes have been perfected, so to speak, over over decades. So um, they will do what they have to do. They will do what either is in their interest or they'll do what you know the regulators require them. We had a, uh, a an agents of impact call this week and we um, talked 
to Satyam Khanna, an ESG advisor to the SEC. Um, and here's what he said. My view is, as a securities lawyer myself, between climate and human capital, this is probably one of the most important set of disclosure rulemakings in a, in a generation at the SEC. And David, I understand that there was a viral LinkedIn post with a noted Harvard professor. Oh, can you walk us through the controversy there? Well, it's just it's just exactly that controversy, Brian. Bob Eccles, who's a sort of a longtime consultant and mentor and, 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 and participant in a lot of these standard setting bodies and whatnot, put out what he thought was a fairly um, prosaic post just saying that, you know, the impact investing world was moving towards this set of uniform standards and that was going to help investors have kind of comparable data by which they could assess these things. And he got hammered by some folks who said, you know, that that was a sellout and not going far enough um, along this externalities front and that um, that that to conflating this kind of narrow ESG materiality reporting with true sustainability, you know, was a step backwards, not a step forwards. And so this is an example of the way these things can get quite heated uh, and also some of the sort of vitriol and almost personal um, name calling that can sometimes ensue in these debates. Now, are these, you know, debates over how many angels can dance on the head of a pin or what are the the true stakes uh, at play here? Well, companies, you know, will report, like I said, on what they are required to report report on. So there is a point to be made that looking more broadly at stakeholder impacts on communities, on on workers, on, on the environment, um, you know, is an important thing to get companies comfortable with uh, reporting on and that that's how investors uh, will be able to make decisions. So um, the, the counter argument, of course, is, you know, take what you can get, take what you can get to stand up in court, you know, make small progress, small incremental progress, um, and then, you know, and then fight the next battle after you've won that. And um, I think there's probably some salience to that. I'd be interested to know what you think, Imogen, about not just the ultimate goal, but about the tactics that can get us there. Understanding the broader impact that companies are having is important. It's sort of the universal ownership argument, right? If Pfizer profits from the COVID vaccine and therefore the the price of their stock goes up. That's great for me as an investor. But if it's doing so at the cost of everybody being able to get access to the vaccine and that has a drag on, you know, global economy, then that's going to be terrible for my broader portfolio and society at large. So I think these questions of what are the the sort of social, environmental, and economic impacts of the broader footprint that a company is having are really important. And I think moving in that direction is important and doing so, you know, in a timely manner. That said, I I don't see why all of that has to be the responsibility of the company itself, right? I feel like activists in particular are very good at getting other people to do work. And some of this analysis could and should be done elsewhere. And I do think that progress is being made in terms of getting companies to report on these ESG factors and to, you know, I didn't target materiality and take them seriously. I think that the, the distinction here might be climate change, where you can see how the SEC would have an interest in asking companies to report and disclose 
beyond their own material self-interest. There's a couple of uh, terms, Brian and and Imogen, that uh, folks will get familiar with over the coming months and years, Um, not just materiality and and externalities, but double materiality, which is the material impacts on other stakeholders, and then dynamic materiality, which just acknowledges that some things that, you know, didn't used to be material are now considered material, including, as you say, Imogen, um, these externalities that that affect everybody, like vaccine availability, the uh, preponderance of, of variants coming coming down the pike, um, obviously climate change, or in some cases, you know, as we'll see in the proxy battles and the shareholder resolutions coming up this spring, you know, things like misinformation. Can your news organization uh, profit from being a provocateur, but uh, but actually doing harm to, to, to the broader um, environment? That's another great example, right? If you look at something like, you know, Facebook or, you know, Meta, where, you know, do those negative externalities ultimately come back to haunt a company? Is the distinction, in fact, no distinction if over the long term it's going to result in, you know, legal ramifications, loss of you, loss loss of users and other factors for the company itself? In which case those those externalities would be very material indeed. Exactly. You don't necessarily see that in the, the sort of quarterly or even annual earnings cycle. Well, David, back to your observation about the increasing in uh, from materiality to double materiality. I was going to make a reference to the razor blade industry, you know, going from two blades to three blades to four blades. And then the onion famously had a satirical headline of a razor blade executive saying, you know, F it all, we're making five blades. Uh, so it, it does seem like some, sometimes there's just a, if you will, an arms race when it comes to, you know, who is asking for the most disclosures possible. I thought you were going to say uh, when when the when the musician in Spinal Tap turned his amp up to 11. That's where we're going. That's where we're going. Speaking of turning it up to 11, we have uh, another example of materiality with Carl Icahn in the news this week. Uh, noted activist investor, uh, you know, billionaire hedge fund investor, Carl Icahn has uh, turned his sights on a public company, but not in the typical way that he usually turns his sights on a public company. David, what, what happened this week? Well, it's the evolving definition of the activist investor, as you said, Carl Icahn, known as as an activist for for shaking up boards and, and whatnot. Now he wants, I think, McDonald's to stop using uh, pigs that have been raised in cages while they're pregnant. Do I have that right, Imogen? I think so, yes. And uh, the, the what's interesting is he doesn't have uh, a, a, a big share in McDonald's. He's just had enough to, to introduce a... A resolution. So um, uh, he's acting more like the climate and human rights activist that we've uh, been tracking for a long time, but except he's the billionaire Carl Icahn. Which kind of implies he's not putting his money where his mouth is, right? And Carl Icahn is sort of famous for being cheap. So it's, it's also striking that he's doing this quote unquote because of his daughter and, and her interest in the, the issue, which again is a, is a very rich old white man approach to this whole sector. And so if we even talk about this for one minute, even more, we're playing into that. uh, We're playing into his grand plan. All right. So that seems like a good place to end it for this week's impact briefing. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, Brian, as always. And thank you, Imogen. Thank you both. Thanks to all of you for listening. And thanks to our producer extraordinaire, Isaac Silk. Subscribe to receive the daily email brief and access to every Impact Alpha story. 
podcast listeners get $100 off their first year subscription. Go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and use the code briefing100. I'm Brian Walsh, head of sustainability for the capital markets firm TPI Cap. Until next time, take good care.